the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, he is. He's here to say hello there. It is, of course, your uh, basic Tuesday for the 23rd day of October at just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. How are you doing so far? All right, we made it through almost yeah, two full days here, right? We're, we're well into the week, right? We get... Got the, the momentum going. Ted Jarrell is just rolling his eyes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> In the event, great to have you on board for this Tuesday edition of Lifeline. Got a great show lined up for you. Ed, did you watch any of the rally? My, my. It's amazing to see how in two years' time, Ted Cruz and President Trump have gone from a scrapping and a fighting to a hugging and a kissing. <laughs> it seemed to be a whole lot of that going on. I th- think maybe... What's going to happen two weeks from today may have a little, just a minor impact on that, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm suspecting. At any rate, we're going to talk about it. Bob Zadek will join us, nationally syndicated talk show host, author of a number of best-selling books. Got a new one that's going to be out real soon. We'll probably have Bob uh, tell us a bit about that. We're going to talk about uh, what's happened to civility in politics. And, you know, it used to go from uh, who had the best ideas to who was the most qualified to know who seems to be able to spew the most vitriol or the least vitriol. And I wonder whether or not a day is coming when this is going to go from being a strategy that leads to winning to one that backfires at the ballot box. We'll talk about it with Bob Zadek. He'll join us in about a half hour. If you have been to the DMV recently, first off, my sincere apologies and uh, sympathies to you. Um, If you've been to the DMV and managed to uh, go through the process of, say, renewing your driver's license, you are no doubt familiar with the California organ donor card. And before you say, oh, I told them at the counter, wasn't interested, I was never musically inclined, that's not the kind of organ donor we're talking about. In fact, California's had this program in place for a long time, and it's a very helpful one, indeed, to many respects. When someone passes away suddenly, say, from an accident and is able to donate part of their body to save another life. Maybe it's a a donation of a heart transplant or something of this sort. Um, Miracles can happen. And, And certainly if that is the choice that you've made upon death that you would wish under the right circumstances for certain specified organs to be made available to help save somebody else's life, I I sincerely and completely applaud you. The problem is there's a bit of ethical creep going on, most recently demonstrated in the September edition of the New England Journal of Medicine, that takes the notion of becoming an organ donor to a whole new level. Joining me is a dear friend. He is a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. He is one of the... um, foremost, I think, experts on the topic of bioethics. 
He's written a number of best-selling books. He's had hundreds of articles and opinion columns published in every imaginable imaginable uh, publication that you can certainly think of, and he's been on a number of radio talk shows, television programs, et cetera, et cetera, including this one a number of times down through the years. He is bioethicist Wesley Smith. Wes, is always great to have you on the program. Hey, Craig, you really made me feel old in your intro when you said you were the oldest, longest-running conservative <laughs> talk show in the area. Yep. I've been, on, I've been coming on your show since you were a pup. You I know? was just knee-high to a grasshopper uh, when you started coming on this program. That's exactly right, Wes, yeah. and we're always pleased to have you come on to uh, to open our eyes. And, boy, this is an eye-opener, as I've referred to this most recent article. It appears in the September edition of the New England Journal of Medicine, which I think, as you suggest in an opinion piece that you've recently written, is is – not only another step down the slippery slope, but a major paradigm shift, certainly for the New England Journal of Medicine, that seems to be taking a broad step back from a position of supporting any notion of the Hippocratic Oath. Tell us what's going on. Tell us what's happened here. Right. Thank you very much. If anybody's interested in reading the article, it's called A Gruesome Plan, and it ran in the Weekly Standard. And uh, if you look up my article archives, it's there. The reason I wrote this piece is precisely because it ran in the uh, New England Journal of Medicine. This is not like people uh, saying really horrible things on the Internet on some uh, obscure website. This is the most respected medical journal in the world. And when something is in the, in the New England Journal of Medicine and it is published without criticism and without rebuttal, that should set your hair on fire if it's something that is unethical as this was. And the article specifically stated that in countries where euthanasia is legal, or places where euthanasia is legal, and by the way... Did we lose him? I think we did indeed. Okay, so let's uh, let's see if we can't renegotiate that... Uh, that telephone call here that happens sometimes, Jarrell. You you either fail to feed the uh, the squirrel, or uh, please deposit twenty five cents for <laughs> please deposit twenty five cents for an additional five minutes. Remember when we used to hear those recordings? Okay, sorry to be so rudely interrupted by the phone company. There, go ahead if you would, please, Wes. Uh, I was thinking I offended you. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. Go, go, go ahead. So, um, yeah. Here's the situation. In countries where euthanasia is legal, specifically Belgium and the Netherlands, and once in Canada, euthanasia, meaning lethal injection killing by doctors, has been conjoined with organ harvesting, which is something I have been warning against since 1993. And it's a great concern because some of these people in the Netherlands and in Belgium are being killed not because they have cancer or because they have uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, but because of mental illness. So what you have in these countries are people who are not physically ill but going through a terrible time with mental illness. They go to a hospital. They are infused with poison. They die, and they're moved into a uh, surgical suite right away, and their organs are harvested. That's a terrible, horrible cruelty and wickedness, because what you're telling people who are having existential anguish is that their deaths have greater value than their lives. And that could be the tipping point that pushes people into the death decision.
But what the, New, the article in the New England Journal of Medicine said is, hey, word euthanasia is legal, and by the way, of course, assisted suicide is legal in California. Where this is legal, why should we wait for people to die and then take their organs? Let's kill them through the organ procurement process itself. In other words, euthanasia by organ donation, which would destroy the ethical basis of organ transplant medicine, which is an ethical enterprise at this point. The organ transplant medicine ethics is predicated on what is called the dead donor rule. And that says two things. One is you cannot give up vital organs unless you're actually dead. And two, the cause of your death cannot be the taking of the organs. So what these people and the New England Journal of Medicine of all places is proposing is that the dead donor rule, which maintains ethical practice in transplant medicine, should be cast aside if where euthanasia is legalized. And by the way, turning people who give the gift of life to transplant medicine, surgeons, into actual killers of people. What a horrible proposal. And the fact that it was in the New England Journal of Medicine without rebuttal and without criticism is really an appalling thing. Well, moreover, the message that it sends here, it's suggesting that life is not worthy to be lived at certain levels or in certain uh, circumstances, and therefore, why not do the the more noble thing by essentially, I think, what, uh, subjecting yourself to voluntary euthanasia, which under any other circumstances would be called suicide, wouldn't it? Yeah, and and it's and it's a, as you said in the introduction, it's a total abdication of uh, Hippocratic values, Hippocratic oath values, and an acceptance of a crass utilitarianism that will be the end of ethical and moral medical practice. Well, the other concern here, and I want to pick this up after the break, the other concern here, Wes, is the notion, and this is not that long ago, this is in the lifetime of people listening to this program, in fact, that when the Nazis did this, it was called crimes against humanity. But today, when we do it, we call it noble. Let's talk a bit about that after we return after a timeout. Noted bioethicist Wes Smith is with us today. Wesley's a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. You can find this article that we are discussing appeared in uh, the National Review uh, most recently in response to um, an article, an eye-opening shocker, quite frankly, in the September edition of the New England Journal of Medicine, which um, heretofore had been a, a pretty staid, pretty stoic, well-respected uh, publication, now raising some serious concerns about uh, what appears to be a, a, a major paradigm shift in their ethics over there, and uh, and and when we drill this thing down after the break, I think you're going to understand um, that there is precedence for this that goes back to the 1920s, and it isn't good. Back with more of our conversation right after an update on traffic. All right, 516, and here's the latest. Michael Bennett, what say you from the KFAX Traffic Center? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So as we kind of fill in the blanks here, if you're joining us a bit late, we're talking today with bioethicist Wesley Smith. He is a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. We are responding today, Wes, is to an article that appeared in the September edition of the New England Journal of Medicine that essentially is advocating not just 
organ donors. I mean, it's a good idea. I think that uh, certainly if you feel that uh, you would like to be able to use part of uh, your body after you pass away from, say, an automobile accident, something of that sort, uh, to be able to save the life of another person, hey, that, that's a great thing. It's a great gift to be able to give. Uh, but to do it while you're still alive raises multiple serious ethical questions. And, and as I suggested before the break, and you hinted at this as well, uh, we're, we're suddenly now moving into this slippery slope here where um, life is no longer based on intrinsic value but utilitarian calculations. And a lot of that seems to me to have its roots, pardon me, its genesis in the science of eugenics of the 1920s. Would give us some of the background on that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the other point is assisted suicide and euthanasia corrupt everything they touch. Uh, and this is just one example where, where because euthanasia is legal, now advocates are saying that uh, rather than killing people and then harvesting their organs, we should just kill them by harvesting their organs, which is a, would be a terrible thing. Um, a lot of people uh, know that uh, that the German doctors created uh, did some terrible things during World War II, and they tend to say, well, it's the Nazis. It wasn't Nazis. It was, as you pointed out, uh, quite correctly, eugenics and utilitarianism of eugenics and the denial of human exceptionalism and the equal uh, uh, sanctity of human life that eugenics uh, uh, epitomized. Uh, so uh, eugenics said that there's a difference between the so-called fit and the so-called unfit, meaning they were dividing the human race into betters and lessers. And uh, people like, uh, let's say, Margaret Sanger uh, proposed that not only should sterilization be uh, permitted, which, by the way, happened to 60,000 innocent Americans, uh, involuntary sterilization under our eugenics laws, but she also said that the pernicious weeds should be pulled up, by which she meant, and this is Margaret Sanger, infanticide. Uh, and indeed, uh, others also supported that in the eugenics movement. Now, that it didn't go that far here in the United States, but it did, as people understand, in Germany, where doctors killed babies born with disabilities, and doctors killed adults born with disabilities, kind of as a prelude to the greater Holocaust. And after the war, uh, some doctors were actually hanged because they had engaged in things that are now being done, for example, in the Netherlands, where babies with, born with disabilities uh, or with terminal illnesses are killed in their cribs by doctors. It's under something called the Groningen Protocol. Your listeners can look it up, G-R-O-N-I-N-G-E-N. It's a bureaucratic checklist uh, for which babies can be killed. And by the way, that was also published in the New England Journal of Medicine several years ago without significant criticism or rebuttal, which is very frightening. Uh, but after World War II, uh, there was a fellow named Dr. Leo Alexander, uh, who was uh, a psychiatrist and medical advisor to the Office of Chief Counsel at the Nuremberg War Crimes. And he wrote a piece for the same New England Journal of Medicine in 1949. And he warned us in 1949, and let me quote him, whatever proportions these crimes finally assumed, and he's talking about the infanticide the uh, horrible medical experiments and so forth that doctors did in Germany. Back to, back to Alexander. It became evident to all who investigated them that they had started from small beginnings. The beginnings at first were merely a subtle shift 
an emphasis in the basic attitude of the physicians. It started with the acceptance of the attitude basic in the euthanasia movement that there is such a thing as a life not worthy to be lived. And then he warned, in an increasing utilitarian society whose patients with chronic or terminal diseases are being looked down upon with increasing definiteness as unwanted ballast, that we have to worry, this is his point, at this point Americans should remember that the enormity of a euthanasia movement is present in their own midst. That was a, that's a very clarion uh, warning, and it's a very famous essay in Medical Ethics, 1949, New England Journal of Medicine. I bet you the New England Journal of Medicine would not publish Leo Alexander today because they have embraced, or at the very least, given respectability to infanticide of disabled babies, as is occurring in the Netherlands. They have now published a piece saying, well, we're euthanasia is legal, perhaps we should just kill them by organ harvesting. Uh, and other such things, they have published um, uh, a manual, Ezekiel Emanuel, the bioethicist, who has written that if doctors don't want to perform abortions, they should either find a doctor who will or get out of medicine, meaning destroy all religious freedom and, and a medical conscience in health care. So that's where the New England Journal of Medicine is now heading. It is a complete change from its uh, original uh, mission, it seems to me. They, of course, still publish wonderful uh, articles on hard medicine, but when it comes to medical ethics and morality, the New England Journal of Medicine should change its name to the New Euthanasia Journal of Medicine, in my opinion. Well, and sadly, Wes, they seem to have, or at least in terms of the major paradigm shift here in ethics, seem to have in barely two generations completely forgot the lessons of World War II. And, and, and I have to wonder if, if this mentality you know, sort of the utilitarian approach to life, you know, as they, for example, they use in the Netherlands now. What do you wind up with then? Do you need a flow chart in order to determine who to off and who not to? I mean, how do you make these make these judgment calls? Well, what you end up with is an ever-expanding category of killable people. Uh, because once you decide that uh, there's such a thing as a quality of life of ethic to replace the sanctity of life ethic, meaning that somebody who has a high quality of life, if they become suicidal, we'll give them suicide prevention. But if we deem them to have a life not of high quality, we'll give them the suicide pills. Well, that's the end of universal human equality, isn't it? That's saying to some people, your life is not worth, worth living. Of course you want to commit suicide. Here, let us help. Well, how and manipulative this... And how manipulative this can be to suggest that somehow now, you know, you're, you're volunteering your, your life, essentially saying, okay, you know, I'm, I'm done here, uh, manipulating people into believing that's a greater, uh, greater social value, yes. so to speak, than life itself. What a terrible evil to tell somebody who has very difficult time, let's say because of mental illness or some other challenge, that could be the tipping point to say, you know what, your life isn't worth living but you know what? You could save a lot of other people. And that could push people, and I believe has pushed people, into saying, yeah, maybe I should do this. And it's a, it's a very dangerous precedent. And, and even worse is if society comes to expect it, or society comes to look at people and say, well, why are you hanging on? You know, you know you, your life isn't worth living. And, and uh, in fact, I've seen books out of the Netherlands. Where, there's a book called um, by Bert Kaiser, who's a, in the Netherlands, who's a uh, euthanasia doctor and a nursing home doctor, and he tells the story of a fellow with, um, 
Lou Gehrig's disease, motor neuron disease, as they call it, who wants assisted suicide and euthanasia. And the social worker says, of course you do. Your life doesn't have any value. I'm thinking, well, who's going to protect people when we start accepting in psychiatry, where psychiatrists are now killing mental health, mentally ill patients in the Netherlands and in Belgium? Well, who's going to protect people with mental illnesses if their psychiatrists are going to look at them and say, well, of course you don't have a life worth living. Your suicide is rational. Here, let me get the needle. And by the way, would you like to donate your liver? Well, that brings us back... That brings us back, Wes, full circle to the the impact of the science of eugenics back in the 1920s. And again, what's 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 terrifying about this is, as we continue, <coughs> pardon me, the debate and the discussion related to health care, health care expenses. You know, there's uh, you know four thousand people in need of liver transplants and three thousand livers available. What do we do? Things of this sort. Suddenly now, um, we we've we've seen ourselves pushed into a notion that we're um, health care rationing so only the wealthy and only the worthy receive what they need and if you're on the wrong end of the scale oh well and then we try to distort it sort of you know add the sugar to the medicine to make it go down better by convincing people that it's a noble thing to do it's uh, it's troubling and 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 troubling that the same publication that two generations ago warned against this is now today in a position to be promoting it if you'd like to see Wes Smith's article that deals with the topic called Keep the Dead Donor Rule. It appears in um, this month's edition of the National Review. You can also get more information by going to discovery.org. That's discovery.org. Our thanks to bioethicist Wesley J. Smith, Senior Fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Eye opener. Wow. Slippery slope to be sure. And we better wake up and smell the cocoa while we can. Otherwise, someday we won't be talking about this in the third person. We'll be experiencing it for ourselves. 5.30. That means time to head back over to the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael Bennett, what's going on over there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. This is uh, perhaps how most of us remember them, Ted and Donald. But I disagree with him on that. That's a matter you of principle, and I'll, and I'll tell you. You are the single biggest liar. You probably are worse than Jeb Bush. You are the single biggest liar. All right. This guy lied. Let me just tell you. This guy lied about Ben Carson when he took votes away from Ben Carson in Iowa. And he just continues. This guy will say anything. Nasty guy. Now I know why he doesn't have one endorsement from any right. of his colleagues. All right, uh, John, I, I get Cruz, to respond. Pick from the buffet there. He's a yeah. nasty guy. Now, Donald has this weird pattern. <laughs> when you yeah, point- that, that was them just a scant, uh, a scant two years ago, and they went from a scrapping and a fighting to last night a hugging and a kissing. It's amazing how... Uh, how two years in a midterm election will uh, will change hearts and minds, uh, at least as they look toward the ballot box. The, all of this, though, I think, pretends to the idea that there has been a shift going on slowly and steadily within American politics, within the body politic, that that is moving towards the vitriol, the the angst, the anger, and it seems like we have we've made this shift from what it used to be: who was the most, who had the best plan, who was the most experienced, to now who can spew the most vitriol. Let's get a look at this 
shift and, and whether or not it's sustainable, meaning is there going to be a day when the voters will wake up and say, you know what, um, I'm, I'm tired of this. And suddenly, who can be the nastiest doesn't make you the most qualified candidate, but rather gets you kicked off and kicked out. Joining me now is nationally syndicated talk show host, best-selling author, Bob Zadek. He hosts The Bob Zadek Show. Heard Sunday mornings here in the Bay Area at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. And uh, Bob's got a new book out shortly, too. We'll talk about that during our conversation. Meanwhile, Bob, as always, great to have you on the program. Thank you very much, Craig. Thanks for having me. Well, what do you think about this? I mean, you know, there are moments when we see this kind of catfight going on and the give and take, and, you know, our guy seems to have the better comeback, the greater insult, and we're rooting and cheering. But, you know, after a while, I wonder whether or not this is ultimately going to wear on voters, and slowly we're going to begin waking up to the notion that while it might make for entertaining political debate, it doesn't lead to creating very good statesmen. Well, I, Craig, you seem to be talking about a matter of political style, of campaigning style. I don't really have strong opinions on the style a candidate adopts. Candidates have to learn to do one thing, which is they have to appear not to be forced. They have to campaign in a way that's true to their personality, their temperament, and their intellect, so that they don't appear inauthentic. And sometimes the style that they bring to the table and therefore what they have to offer is the style, and I won't categorize it other than to say it's Donald Trump's style. Other times it's the style of Ronald Reagan, generally in a very broad sense, perhaps more kind of the same worldview, although there are profound differences. I don't want to discuss that. But in terms of style, night and day. Reagan was likable, was funny, was never a bully, except when it came to Gorbachev, uh, and then he was a very subtle bully. Uh, But Reagan was true to himself. Jimmy Carter was true to himself. Bill Clinton was true to himself. And when you are authentic, you have the best shot of winning if the public likes what you're selling. So I, I am not too bogged down, nor am I concerned. I'm disturbed. I don't like it. It's, it, it's yucky to see Donald Trump perform uh, as, as if he was still a TV personality. But I don't get too bogged down and worrisome about Trump's style, other than I'm personally embarrassed. But when we talk about civility, Craig, which you and I have talked about from time to time, uh, what's getting more attention is the apparent, and I kind of disagree with it, but we can get into that, the apparent loss of civility within the entire country. The Democrats as a group hate the Republicans as a group. The the blue states hate the red states. The urban hates the rural. Everybody hates everybody. Uh, And that's what columnists and commentators are worrying about is that it appears to those commentators that we are far less civil than we used to be. I take issue with that. Uh, I say that's not true at all. We can get into the, uh, the data backing that up. But I think the big picture is, are we, have we lost civility in the body politic, in the country as a whole, and what does that portend to us uh, going forward? And what is the, and most importantly, what is the cause of it? 
and what is the solution? Those last two questions are the most interesting of all. Well, and it goes to, in many respects, the the, the heart of our democracy or what it means to have a democracy. And, and, and I think in, in, in some respects, perhaps even the sound clip that I played a moment ago is more symptomatic of, of this greater notion of the, the growing degree of incivility, not only that takes place on the debate stage, but let's, let's face it, as we've listened to the talking heads or maybe the people at the water cooler at work or a conversation over the dinner table concerning this midterm election and really what's gone on here in America in the last couple of years in the political cycle, there seems to be this, this shift taking place to be less kind. We used to be able to agree to disagree, and now it seems as if it's all about just the disagreement. Is that is that accurate? Um, I'm not sure it is, Craig. People always uh, people often comment that the good old days were better. There was more civility. Tip O'Neill getting along with um, with his counterpart and doing deals, uh, and there was a lot more cooperation. And there was within the Senate and within the House, perhaps, but. In the country as a whole, we have had incredibly brutal campaigns and far and away the nastiest political campaign in our history was the first one. And that was the campaign of 1800 Jefferson versus Adams for the presidency. That was, by any objective measure, the most bitter, the most insulting, the most no-holes-barred campaign we have ever seen as a country. And that was in 1800, and the participants were the founders of our country. So I'm not so sure that we have much to say for the good old days. I think we have always had we versus them. There have always been factions in our country, always will be, and factions aren't necessarily unhealthy. Different people have different points of view, and they tend to group together. They live together, they hang out together, they read the same papers. That's kind of natural. And to imagine a country of open-minded people without any views and just there to be persuaded... We've never had it and never will. But, you know, for the longest time, at least from my my realm of, of, of influence in, in my world, so to speak, you know, you could walk into a room and if somebody declared themselves a Democrat and you're a Republican or vice versa, you know, there might be a little bit of uh, poking and, uh, and, and teasing and things of this sort, but then you moved on. Today, it seems that there's an ever-increasing degree at which people get very vocal, very angry. They go from zero to 100 on the emotional meter scale at, 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 at virtually at a snap. And there just seems to be a degree of of nastiness that's demonstrating it. And, and, and look, I get the fact, as you're suggesting, I think even historically, that democracy is not always neat. In fact, a lot of democracies had blood all around it. And yet, does it have to be necessarily as nasty as it appears to be, at least in some corners today? Here is a theory. Now, obviously, I don't even suggest that I know the answer, but I've thought about it a lot, and I have a theory to throw out there in the uh, pool for discussion with everybody else's theory. But what's happened, the, the one constant has been the following. More and more and more power has devolved from the states to Washington, That fact is indisputable. That fact is contrary 
to the the principles on which our country was founded. Now, what do the two things have in common? What is that? Why do I mention that in a discussion of civility? Here's why, Craig. Because if the federal government didn't have so much power over all of us, then even if the other party was in power, as the Republicans are in power now, power being an ugly word, if if one party was in power, but the federal government didn't have so much to say about our lives, then it wouldn't matter that much because no matter who was in power, those in power couldn't do that many bad things to you. So it's the once you once the other guy gets power, you, you are forced to live in a system you abhor. Now, what would be a different approach if the power resided where it belonged in the states and if you found yourself living in california and you abhorred the politics you abhorred the nanny state you abhorred high taxes you abhorred wealth transfers you couldn't stand any of that you'd move to texas yeah it's a big deal but not that big a deal compared to when the republicans are in power and you're a democrat Your toast, your choice is move to Canada, a far more profound and and significant decision than moving to Austin, Texas from California. So what happens is the stakes in who is in power become so much greater that if you lose, if your team loses and the other guy gets into power, your life is profoundly different. If it were if the states had the power, no matter who was in control in your state, you have autonomy over yourself. You move and you vote with your feet. And states that find themselves losing population, like California, like New York, because of bad policies, they would catch on. And so I say the difference between then and now is the fact that by putting all the power in Washington and not in the states... Everybody in the, or half the people in the country end up with no choice if they don't like what's going on, well, as and, opposed to moving from state to state, which is an easy choice. And, and certainly, you know, uh, th- there's nothing scientific to this poll, but uh, as I've talked to listeners on this program uh, from variety of backgrounds and, and, and uh, uh, socioeconomic status, and, and when the question comes up about the level of anger or angst, at either you know Washington D.C. or Sacramento, and if you if you pose to them a simple question, well, if you could burn down either capital to make a point, which would it be? Almost without exception, people say, "Oh, that's easy, Washington D.C." And you're right because in the case of of the states, listen, if if your state passed a tax increase, you could always say, "You know what? I've had enough of California. I'm moving to Nevada." Now, at least you're moving to a different state, but you're retaining your your citizenship. We see more and more people that say, I feel as if things are so out of control that there's so much of this shift, as you're suggesting, Bob, from a state's level to the federal level, the more centralization of power, that people feel as if moving to another state is not sufficient. They need to surrender their citizenship and move to another country. And that is ultimately troubling. I want to pick up that um, notion when we come back after the break and also have Bob give us some insights into this, uh, the shift that we're seeing, because in the early days, 
Founding fathers didn't see it this way. In fact, I've, I've often said, isn't it ironic that while the Soviet Union ultimately collapsed because of uh, the concentration of all the power at the federal level in Moscow, that the United States has not been paying any attention to that. In fact, we've been heading in that exact same direction, centralization of power. And it's, it's, it's creating, I think, some serious issues that may be at the core are also helping us, to, as Bob suggests, to better understand why there is this uptick in incivility amongst us as Americans. Best-selling author, syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek is with us today. His program, by the way, can be heard Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. He's syndicated. And, of course, if you've got friends and relatives that live in other parts of uh, the West Coast, you want to find out more about the show, invite them to tune in. You can do so. Check out Bob's website at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. There you'll find not only a complete listing of past guests, topics, as well as podcasts, but also information about his books. He's got a new one on the way. We'll talk about that as well as our conversation with Bob Zadek continues right after this. Ten away from the hour. Time flies when you're having fun. Let's get a look at what's going on traffic-wise. Michael Bennett, it's all yours. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. The slow, steady usurping of power and authority might be a good way to define part of this paradigm shift that we're seeing in incivility in American politics today. We're visiting with nationally syndicated talk show host, best-selling author Bob Zadek, host of The Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. on 860 a.m., The Answer here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Bob, certainly one of the things unique about our form of government is the notion from the Founding Fathers that power would flow from not the top down, but rather from the bottom up, that essentially neither the state nor the Fed could become too powerful. And yet, as you're, I think, suggesting, that's exactly what's happened here at the federal level, usurping more power and authority from the states and maybe leading to a lot of the angst that we're seeing. How is this happening? Well, it happened a complement of the political system's evolution and some unfortunate constitutional amendments and some really unfortunate Supreme Court cases along the way. You know, uh, so that's how it happened. It happened through the uh, over a couple of hundred years through the political process. But what's interesting, Craig, is a lot of commentators worry about the balkanization of America, that all of the urban uh, East Coasters, they they live in urban enclaves. Republicans tend to live in rural areas. And people live amongst and read people who think the same way. If you're conservative, you watch conservative media. If you're progressive, you watch progressive media. You never get to hear the other point of view. Nobody listens to the other side. Now, there are a lot of worry, a lot of angst about that. That doesn't trouble me one tiny bit. If people chose to live with other people like them, if Jews chose to live in a neighborhood primarily Jewish and blacks and Asians and Polish and white people, if they chose to live in an area with others who are like them, I couldn't care less. That's neither healthy nor unhealthy. It's just a choice. Now, the problem is, the problem is when 
some people can force their will on other people. And that's where the problem arises. And where you have Washington and the party in control, Washington has so much power, the minority or the then voting majority can force their will upon other people. That's where the sparks start to fly. I am not troubled by balkanization so long as it doesn't affect me. Now, there's... uh, Felix Frank, uh, Justice Brandeis was a Supreme Court justice um, in the early 20th century, and he is he is the source of a very famous quotation. He talked about his language was called making states into laboratories of democracy. What what he said, and it's a very short quote. He said uh, in the Supreme Court state, in a Supreme Court case, a state may. If its citizens choose, serve as a laboratory and try novel and social economic experiments without risk to the rest of the country. Close quote. In other words, I love the fact that California is profoundly progressive, as is New York. I love that Texas is conservative because we get a chance to experiment with different political viewpoints. And New York is crazy. And California is crazy. Well, if I don't like it enough, I can leave. And so, therefore, I don't care that much because I'm living here by choice, not by compulsion, not because I don't have other choices. Once you take away choices, then people get angry and sometimes they get violent because a different lifestyle is being forced upon them. It's the use of force that's dangerous and where you don't have an option of moving to another state that promotes anger i do not object to balkanization i don't care if progressives never read a conservative newspaper i don't aspire to change a progressive into a conservative i just aspire that the progressive can't impose their progressive views on me as long as they're progressive by themselves with their own crowd I could care less. Does it trouble you, as I suggested before the break, when when we've seen this shift where when once if a state had certain leanings, whatever it might be in terms of tax policy, you name it, people would say, "Okay, don't like it here. I've got 49 other choices that I can make and still maintain my citizenship, still remain an American and fully integrated into the American experience, the American culture. And yet we see an increasing level of people that say, you know what, what's happening to us in this top-down uh, power style that, that has slowly crept in, as you suggest, that people now are saying, I can't stand it anywhere here. I want to leave the country. I want to get out of the United States and go somewhere else. Do you find that troubling? Uh, I find it troubling that that our country has taken away the choice of lifestyle. Of course that's troubling to me because the choice to leave the country where you have spent your life with which you identify, that's a Hobson's choice. That's not a real choice. And of course, because not having a choice is not having freedom. Now, if we had 50 states and if the states had different points of view, we do have 50 states, but if they have, as they do now, different political philosophies and I would not have much respect 
for those people who voted for a progressive government in New York or in California. But if there was a, a time to be all Americans, like a war, and you have soldiers from New York fighting alongside soldiers from Iowa, they would not be angry at each other. They might not understand each other's politics, but there wouldn't be any hatred because the progressive guy from New York is not imposing her will, his will, on the progressive from Iowa. So it's live and let live. Having power in the states gives people freedom, gives people choice. I don't aspire to make people be nicer. I hope they would be, but I don't want to enforce it upon them. And if they want to live in a certain lifestyle, just leave me out of it. Let me have a choice, and I'm perfectly content. And when you and what's happening is, as more power solidifies in Washington, there is an, a profound erosion in freedom. And when people feel their freedom disappearing and they are powerless, it brings out the worst in them. So the politics in Washington is bringing out the worst in our citizens. Undoubtedly so, and, and certainly the worst in many of our candidates, as we suggested at the beginning of our conversation here today. I'll mention, by the way, that Bob has got a new book coming out just next week on the topic of federalism to give us a little deeper historical understanding as to what was the Founding Fathers' original view here in in their wisdom. I mean, did, did they see this fight coming? Well, certainly they, they, they knew the danger of the, the top-down authoritarian rule under a monarchy, for example, having come from England. They wanted to avoid that. They wanted to make sure that there was empowerment at the people level. And, of course, that begins first with states and making sure that there is enough balance of power so that neither state nor the federal can take too much of it. And sadly, of course, that balance of power has been tipped pretty significantly. We're going to get Bob back on the program to talk about the new book the minute it's ready to be released. And again, I want to invite you to check out his program. If you're looking for an intelligent alternative to a lot of the talking head nonsense on Sunday mornings. I'll get up in the morning and tune in and go, blah, blah, blah. There's more of that, more of that. And they're all talking a mile a minute. Nobody's saying anything. Bob brings on insightful guests that understand much of not just the current day dynamic, but the historical context to help us see how far in many respects we have drifted from the the vision of the Founding Fathers and why it's critical that we as Americans sit down and have a serious dialogue about this while our republic can still be saved. And I know that sounds like strong words, and you know what? I choose those words intentionally. Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. Information about Bob Guest, past shows, podcasts, as well as the stations that he's heard on, available at his website, at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K, bobzadek.com. And uh, we'll get Bob back on as soon as that new book is ready to rock and roll. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks to Bob Zadek for being with us. All right. 601, the man says, Craig, they're going to kick you out of here with a shepherd's crook if you don't get over to the traffic department. We're going to let Michael Bennett take over the proceedings here for the minute. And then around the corner, hour number two, the Tuesday edition of Lifeline. Right now, traffic. Michael? 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.